G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman, a wheels and estate solicitor, but sometimes I like to dabble or at least peek into the world of family law. And that's what I'm doing in this episode. Today I'm looking at the case of Swimbank versus Stein, 2022. It feels like nowadays a romantic relationship can take many forms. Polyamorous relationships, friends with benefits, unicorn relationships. But at the end of the day, the family law applies to recognised marriages and de facto relationships. This means that more frequently, anyone who practices in family law is asking, is this a de facto relationship? Background. The parties are Mr. Swinbank and Miss Stein, although those will be aliases to protect their real identities. Mr. Swinbank claimed that he was in a de facto relationship with Miss Stein. Miss Stein disagreed. Both were born in 1981 and were 41 years old at the time of this hearing. The applicant, Mr. Swinbank, had worked for five years in primary industry as a fly-in, fly-out worker. By the time of the hearing, he was unemployed and lived in his car. At all times, including by the time of the hearing, Miss Stein worked in public service. They had two children. X was born in 2014 and was now seven years old, and Y was born in 2016, now six years old. That's not their real names. I was going to say obviously not their names, but it's not so obvious nowadays. They are just referred to as X and Y to protect their identities. Mr. Swimbank had two children from a previous relationship. They are 16 and 12 and live with their mother. Miss Stein had one other child, a 17-year-old who lives with her X and Y. Mr. Swimbank stated that they started living together in early 2014. At that time, Mr. Swimbank owned a property in Queensland, a car, a boat and superannuation. Ms. Stein owned four properties, one she lived in and the other she rented out. She also had a car and superannuation. As well as working in public service, she also earned an income as a foster carer and occasionally let rooms in her house. The parties never had a joint bank account or owned any property together. Ms. Stein's counter-argument was that they never lived together, that Mr. Swimbank had lived between his house and his sister's house. At best, she said, all they had was a casual sexual relationship, that he would visit her two to three times per year and over the duration of their relationship only visited her between 10 to 15 times. She said he never had a key to her house, never kept any clothes or possessions there. She said that they would have sex and afterwards he would shower and leave, or she would fall asleep and wake up to find him gone. Those few times that he did stay overnight, he mostly slept downstairs in the garage. But this is only what Miss Stein said and was not entirely accepted by the court. According to Miss Stein, the two pregnancies were unplanned and Mr. Swimbank had told her to have an abortion for each of them. She said that he provided no support to her during her pregnancies or after the birth of their children. 
He denied this and said he was involved in the children's lives and would speak to them daily, but he wasn't able to give any particulars or be specific. Like most de facto disputes, it's a classic he-said-she-said scenario. The hearing. Mr Swimbank's evidence was two affidavits sworn by him and attached to one of his affidavits was statutory declarations made by other people. This was irregular in that evidence submitted to the court from witnesses should be in the form of an affidavit. An affidavit is a sworn statement of someone's evidence. The term affidavit comes from medieval Latin and means he has stated on oath. It should contain facts and not opinion or beliefs, unless the witness is an expert witness. So for an example, a doctor might say that, based on the medical reports or observed behaviour, it is their belief that the person has such and such diagnosis. But a lay person couldn't say, I observed their behaviour and I thought they had this, because they're not an expert. It's not within them to be able to give that level of evidence. An affidavit needs to be witnessed, normally by a solicitor or a JP, and the party signing declares that the contents are true and correct to their knowledge. A statutory declaration is also a written statement of facts, however, it is the affidavit that is used to put evidence before the court. In this way, all of the evidence put before the court is put by a very particular person, so you know exactly who's putting this evidence forward, and they have sworn or affirmed to the court that, is, that it is the truth as far as they know. In this case, it was problematic that Mr Swimbank was trying to sneak in some stat decks by attaching them to his affidavit. It's kind of like, instead of his witnesses giving direct evidence to the court, they had given that evidence to him and he was giving it to the court. He was given the opportunity to address this and arrange for his witnesses to file affidavits, but he didn't do that. The judge gave leave for some of the stat deck evidence to be admissible, but not all. In particular, those statutory declarations that had been sworn were considered, and those that were not were excluded. Ready for a politely veiled insult from the judge? He said, quote, Consistent with the relaxed way in which both parties approached their preparation of this matter for trial is the state of their evidence. End quote. Zing! That's a burn. If there is something that shouldn't look relaxed, it is your preparation and your evidence. Justice Jarrett went on to say, quote, The currency of a court is evidence. The actual foundation of any factual finding, inferred or otherwise, is evidence. End quote. Jared also said that in this case the affidavits contained very little actual evidence, in particular Mr Swimbanks, that they all were largely assertions, allegations and argument without much fact. For example, he didn't say how the parties met, how their relationship started, how it came about that they began living together. He asserted they began living together with absolutely no particulars, 
No details to illustrate what he meant. Was he staying in the house, in the same bedroom? Was he there every night, or just now and then? He said it was only when he was in town, but how often was that? There was also documentary evidence that disputed Mr Swimbank's claims that he was living in Ms Stein's house. There were documents and forms where he had stated his address and it wasn't Miss Stein's. Even on the children's birth certificates. Firstly, they had Miss Stein's surname. She said this was due to Mr Swimbank not wanting to live as a family. He had also signed the applications to register the births and put his sister's address. Mr Swimbank had also applied for a bank loan and used his sister's address and also noted that he had been living at his sister's home from late 2012. Really, when you think about it, you have to put down your address on the record so many times and a lot of those won't be available as evidence because they're not going to see where you're getting your parcels delivered necessarily. But a bank loan or official government records will generally or always have your address on them. And this can be used as evidence. And so there was a history where Mr Swimbank was using his sister's address. During the hearing, he was asked why he had used his sister's address if he was supposedly living with Miss Stein. His answer? Quote, Well, I don't know which place you're trying to determine I live at. Now you've got three, so I'm confused. There is an application. Just because it's an application doesn't mean I've put the truth into it. It's like your car license. I have to say I live somewhere to own a car license. Now, I don't have a car license because I don't have a place to live, because I don't live at my sister's. But I've lied since 2012, when I first got divorced. And that's where my mail goes from my first divorce, and I've left it there. So now I actually have no place of residence because I can't even use my sister's address for mail. So now I can't even have a license. That's why it's a lie. I've never lived there, and I lied on my application for my loans. Yes, I have lied on them, but where else am I going to say I live? They ask for a place of residence when you ask for a loan, otherwise you can't get a loan. End quote. So, um, that explains why he put down his sister's address instead of Miss Stein, who was supposedly his de facto partner and who he was arguing he was living with. There was another interesting source of evidence that was available in this case. Miss Stein fostered children, and to live in the house with children being fostered, you have to have what is called a blue card, a check by the Department of Child Safety. Mr Swimbank had a blue card, but he only got it in early 2020, at Miss Stein's request. This means that he wasn't spending enough time at Miss Stein's house to warrant needing a blue card earlier. The application for the blue card also records the following statement, quote, At the request of the department, I am adding my name so I can visit my kids, end quote. Which provides a clear explanation as to why Mr Swimbank was applying for a blue card in 2020. Mr Swimbank called on his sister to give evidence as well. She affirmed that her brother did not live with her, that he lived with Miss Stein, 
and was in a relationship with her since 2014. But the sister was unable to adequately explain why he had his mail sent to her house or why he used her address on forms. The judge found the sister's evidence lacked precision and was of little assistance. Now, something I probably should have mentioned at the start is what is the reason for these proceedings? It's not just to say, were we in a de facto relationship? This was an application to the court to make a property adjustment between de facto partners. So you've been in a de facto relationship, it's gone along for several years, it's now ending, and how do you divide your assets? Normally, de facto partners can apply to the court for the court to help them decide how all of their assets will be divided. And that's what Mr. Swimbank was doing. He was applying to the court for orders of division of property. The very first thing then, the critical component, is to prove that they were in a de facto relationship, because otherwise the whole application must fail. And as Mr. Swimbank is the one making the application, it is for him to prove that the relationship qualified as de facto. We've gone over some of his evidence so far, so what do you guys think? Do you think he's made a good case yet? Personally, when I was reading this judgment, when I first read that they had two children together, I thought, starting out strong, that's a really good starter. But then it went downhill from there. And his case didn't improve in his cross-examination. The judge said, quote, He revealed himself as an angry and frustrated man who seemed to have difficulty with the proposition that his claims in this matter should be subjected to scrutiny or challenge. His answers in cross-examination were often evasive and inflammatory, end quote. To give an example of what his cross-examination was like, here's an extract from the judgment. And I'm doing both roles because a lot of my friends and family are incredibly reluctant to be recorded. Question. And in order to make a number of acquisitions during what you say was a relationship, And I will just take you to the things you have had to do. You've had to take out a number of loans, haven't you? To acquire it or a bit of work on your vehicle? That's correct, isn't it? Answer. No, that's incorrect. Question. Well, didn't you take out a loan from the Commonwealth Bank and you gave the reason for having to take out the loan, vehicle repair? It depends on which vehicle we're talking about. Your... Well, you took out the loan, which vehicle are we talking about? Because I had a vehicle that had an accident and the insurance company paid me out. And then, well, with that I bought the question, yes, sorry, just stop. Which vehicle are you talking about? You've taken a loan that says vehicle repair. When did you take that loan out? Answer. Yeah, sorry, for motor vehicle one. Correct. Question. And when did you take this loan out? Answer. Whatever it says on the loan application, I have no idea. Honestly, if I had been the barrister, I would have felt like just bashing my head against the desk. But on the other side of this matter, Miss Stein's evidence wasn't much better. She did provide some details. She explained that she met Mr Swimbank in 2014 on a dating app. 
They only saw each other two or three times in the first six months. They first had sex three months after meeting and only twice in the initial six months. X, the child, was conceived on one of those occasions. Other elements of Miss Stein's evidence, however, the court didn't find to be entirely honest. Her claim that she only saw Mr Swinbank two to three times per year, for example. The court found that they were together more frequently than she would have had the court believe, and referred to the fact that she admitted to going on fishing and camping trips together. Also, she claimed that Mr Swinbank left none of his possessions at her home, but he did keep some property in her shed. After the relationship broke down and he wanted his things back, police had to escort him onto the property to retrieve his possessions, including alcohol drums he had stored there. In court proceedings, you really do have to be honest to a tedious extent because any indication that you have not been entirely honest goes against your credibility. Generally, Miss Stein's evidence suffered from similar problems that Mr Swimbanks had. The judge said, quote, She too revealed herself as an angry woman who seemed to struggle with the proposition that others would ever question her word. Some of her evidence was evasive and other parts of it were disingenuous. End quote. Which means it's time for another terribly reenacted extract. Question. Miss Stein, at paragraph 100 of your affidavit, you refer to the occasion in late 2020 when Mr. Swimbank attended your house. Answer. Hmm? Question. And amongst other things, you say in paragraph 100 that he was collecting minimal contents from the garage, which mainly comprised of fishing lures, boxes of lures, and alcohol drums to make alcohol. I just wanted to ask you firstly about the alcohol drums to make alcohol. That was Mr. Swimbank's habit. He was accustomed to making his own alcohol, wasn't he? Answer. The drums were from alcohol, like big ones, yeah. Question. Big drums. And they were for the purpose of making his own alcohol, weren't they? Answer. No idea. I know that he liked to drink question. So you say in your affidavit they were alcohol drums to make alcohol? Answer. Hmm? Question. That was the purpose of those drums and you're aware of that aren't you? Answer. That's what I was assuming they were for. Question. Well you know that they were alcohol drums to make alcohol because that's what you say in your affidavit isn't it? Answer. Because they were a drum with a tap on it? And? And I had seen many times on social media about him and alcohol, so putting two and two together, they were alcohol drum. Question. So you knew they were alcohol drums to make alcohol, correct? Answer. Well, you would have... Is it a yes or no? Then yes. Yes? Yes. Question. You knew that. You knew that he did, in fact, use them to make his own alcohol, didn't you? Answer. No idea, I'm sorry. This cross-examination in relation to the alcohol drums continued for some time, and I'm sure it was as clear and understandable as that small snippet. 
While Miss Stein had similar issues with the standard of her evidence, it wasn't her job to prove that a de facto relationship didn't exist. Basically, the applicant puts forward enough evidence to prove their case. As the respondent, the person responding to the application, Miss Stein could then put forward her own evidence to try to disprove Mr. Swimbank's case. But the starting point is for Mr. Swimbank to prove his case, which he didn't. Even with her weak response, she succeeded. She succeeded because he did not. Outcome. There was not enough evidence, and what evidence there was wasn't good enough, to prove the existence of a de facto relationship. Justice Jarrett determined that the parties had never had a de facto relationship. Quote, They may have been in a relationship, but the relationship did not involve the parties living together on a genuine domestic basis. End quote. It followed that an application for property adjustment must be dismissed. What do you guys think? Do you feel like the, it was the right decision? Based on the facts that were before us, would you say they were or were not in a de facto relationship? I think this is a great case because it kind of demonstrates that relationships do come in many forms, and too often from a legal perspective we try to shoehorn them into marriage or de facto or entirely no relationship. But that ignores the fact that you have relationships with an incalculable number of people. It's just what type of relationship is it? Is it a passing one? Is it a business one? Is it a ships in the night? Like relationships come in so many forms and the law should deal with them appropriately. I feel like they made the right decision in this case, mainly because that definition of a de facto relationship, parties living together on a genuine domestic basis, I feel like it was missing in this case, but I'm happy to hear your feedback. I hope you enjoyed this case and I hope you'll join me for my next one.